hopefully this will be something that uh, gives you a deeper understanding and a different look at God. I was, um, I never really like examine what righteousness, you know, is. It's something that, you know, we talk about all the time. We figure it is just about doing right and kind of have just labeled that, but not really did a deep search for what does it mean to be righteous? You know, um, we've given off so many quotes and scriptures about this is the idea of what righteousness looks like. However, is that lining up with what the Bible says? You know, because we want to be accurate with the word of God, not just with people's ideas. So the other day, the scripture that said our righteousness is like filthy rags came to me. And I'm like, that's so deep because we like pride ourselves on being the Christian and we can list the things that make us righteous, the way we look, the way we talk, the things we don't do, the things we do do. And like, if he sees that as just like a filthy, nasty rag, then what are we really doing? And did we miss something along the way that we should have picked up that we didn't pick up? So that's where I was heading in all of this. Because we have a long laundry list. And we feel like if we check that list, then we're good in God's eyes. And sometimes we're just good in each other's eyes. So I want to examine this biblically. I will warn you guys that I do have a lot of scriptures, but they're scriptures that we know, but I think we've gotten so used to reading them and quoting them that we haven't taken time to really dissect them. So I'm going to kind of read them slowly so that we can pick up really what the message is of the letter. Because when you start quoting stuff, you kind of go on autopilot. You're not really thinking about what you're saying. You just know the words and they just fall out your mouth effortlessly. And that's not how the Bible should be. If we want to quote other stuff and all that, that's cool. But when you're talking about life, we shouldn't just let it rattle off our tongue like we're quoting, you know, Martin Luther King or something. We got to take it a little differently. So righteousness is justice within the context of a covenant relationship. When a person fulfills the obligation of a relationship, that person is said to be righteous. Okay, so it's always in the context of a covenant relationship. Again, righteousness is justice within the context of a covenant relationship. When a person fulfills the obligation of a relationship, that person is said to be righteous. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel and he kept his promises to them. In that relationship, he sent them the commandments and rituals in order for them to stay in right standing with him. Old Testament laws were the only way for the people to find righteousness in God. God sent down 10 commandments and it morphed into many, many more. Yet, um, even though when God's people disobeyed and turned their backs on God, God still honored the relationship with them because he is righteous. They will have to deal with the punishment, but God is still their God and he is still obligated to hold up what he says he's going to do because he is righteous and he is perfect. 
Now in the New Testament, one finds again that the relational aspect of righteousness is primary. The righteous are those who participate in and preserve a covenant relationship with God or other persons. God's righteousness is shown in that he has saved humanity in Christ. And then he created the new covenant with the Jew and the Gentile alike. Human righteousness is found in faith, in God's salvation in Christ, in participation in the community of faith. So let's first look at the new covenant. The first covenant served its purpose, but we now have what they say a better covenant that we are to follow. And sometimes I wonder if we really believe it's better because we are constantly trying to get away from the truths of this new covenant to pull out stuff from the old covenant. Because I think in our minds, the old covenant, you could see, taste, feel, you are a part of it. This new covenant takes everything out of our hands and puts it all in God's hand. And that makes us a little uneasy. Because then it makes us have to operate completely on blind trust and faith. And we don't really like that. So I pray that this ignites your heart like never before. I pray that God gives you a revelation of what righteousness truly is and that you'll forever be changed from it. And my hope is that, you know, God will really open our hearts and minds to perceive what he's saying to us. So let's go to Hebrews 8 and 6. And I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. So it may sound a little different, but the same concept. It says, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, we've read this a lot of times, but listen to really what he's saying. God is already put his laws in our minds. He has already written them on our hearts. He is already saying that I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. 
When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Hebrews 9 and 9. It says, this has an important lesson for us today. For under the old system, gifts and sacrifices were offered, but these failed to cleanse the hearts of the people who brought them. For the old system dealt only with certain rituals, with foods to eat and drink, rules of washing themselves, rules about this and that. The people had to keep these rules to tie them over until Christ came with God's new and better way. Because the old covenant could not cleanse the heart. It had no power to change the heart. And that's why God got so frustrated was because you people were doing these things religiously. You don't miss a, 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 a sacrifice. You don't miss an offering. You do it all the doggone time. But your hearts are not where I need them to be. I need the heart to be changed. So God is always going after our heart. If we focus on the outer acts, we are missing the bigger picture of what God wants from us. A clean and changed heart that is towards him. Not towards yourself and not towards trying to make other people happy. So Hebrews 7 and 22. And like I said in the beginning, we are so stuck on the old system. How many rules do we have about what we should eat and drink? About where should we go? What things we should do? How many rules do we have about what it looks like to be a Christian? He said that system is obsolete. It's outdated. It should disappear. We hold on to with everything we got. So Hebrews 7 and 22. Because of God's oath, Christ can guarantee forever the success of this new and better arrangement. Under the old arrangement, there had to be many priests so that when the older ones died off, the system could still be carried on by others who took their places. But Jesus lives forever and continues to be a priest so that no one else is needed. No one else is needed but Jesus. He is able to save completely all who come to God through him. Since he will live forever, he will always be there to remind God that he has paid for their sins with his blood. He will always remind God of what he did in his sacrifice. He's never forgetting. It's always before God. This is what you called me to do. This is what I did. You must forgive their sins. So we have established that the new covenant is with Christ being our mediator. And I think we say that too often, but we play it down too much. Like that's huge. That we have God who can be a little vengeful at times. Old Testament, he was a pill to swallow. Um, Love you, God. But you know what I'm saying? He was something else when you offended him, when you went against him. He did not take it lightly. 
He was serious about us following the rules and doing what he said to do. Then we have Jesus come on. And he's the one constantly reminding God, remember, you can't, you can't do that. They, the blood's on them now. Sit it down. We got to give them more time. Forever. He never stops this chatting with God on our behalf. We need to stop being so scared. He's doing his job forever. He never dies. He's always going to be there. And he's always mediating for us. And he's for us. So he, no matter how foul we are, he's still saying, but we love them. They are with us. No foul right now, but they are ours. Listen, one more time. Why would we want the old system? Why would we want the old covenant that got none of those promises? We're stupid. That's the problem. His death and blood now cleanse us and help us to enter into the covenant with God. Once we are chosen by God, submit to his guiding and turning our hearts from stone to flesh, we repent before him and accept the complete sacrifice of the cross to save us. Somewhere in between baptism and receiving the spirit, we forgot that it was completed. We still trying to get saved. We still trying to make sure that the cross worked. And we're walking around shaky as if the cross was ineffective. That has to be awful offensive to God. Just awful offensive. So, in obedience, we then submit to baptism, trust him to send his spirit to abide in us. He graciously shows us a sign that we have his spirit in the form of tongues. Now, once we have been saved, then the heavy lifting is crisis. He does the presenting. He does the changing of the heart. He does the transforming of the mind. We don't have the ability to do it. I cannot change my heart. I cannot change my mind. Only God can do it. I can pray 24-7. I can wear my white suit and, and my hat and I can fast five days a week. I can do all of that stuff. But my heart, I have no power to change. And we think by doing stuff, we're somehow helping in the transformation with God. That's a lie in case anyone didn't know that. So having faith to believe that his words and promises are true is our heavy lifting. That's what we're focusing on. When we believe the spirit then has permission to lead us and guide us into heaven. But it takes us having faith and trust. If we don't have the faith and trust, it's not working. No matter how much we speak in tongues, no matter how many times we sit on the pew and go to the altar, we will always be out of step with God. Now, we're going to take a walk through Romans. See what Paul tells us about righteousness. So keep in mind that righteousness is always within the context of relationships. So if what you're doing is not in context of relationship, you have not touched righteousness. 
So you wearing that long skirt and button up the hair has nothing to do with your relationship. Therefore, it does not promote righteousness. So being in a relationship with God is what gives me the ability to say I am righteous. If you're not in relationship in the context of what a relationship is, this give and take this, you speaking into me, I'm giving you my stuff. We are tightly knitted together. I cannot ever come close to righteousness. Again, we have to read these scriptures. Listen intently this time. Romans 8 and 1. So it says, so there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of life giving spirit and this power is mine through Christ Jesus. It has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. We aren't saved from sin's grasp by knowing the commandments of God because we can't and don't keep them. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son in a human body like ours, except that ours are sinful and destroyed sin's control over us by giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So now we can obey God's laws if we follow after the Holy Spirit and no longer obey the old evil nature within us. Drop down to 15. And so we should not be like cringing, fearful slaves, but we should behave like God's very own children adopted into the bosom of his family and calling to him, Father, Father. The problem is, is that we have not quite accepted the fact that we have no condemnation. We have not quite accepted that he, that sin, excuse me, has no control over us. We keep fighting sin. But God said, because I did what I did with my son, it has no control over you. The moment you feel like it has control is that's a lie from Satan. To trick you to believe that it can grab you again. But the scripture says it has no control. You won't really believe that. Sometimes I think we believe that the pinnacle of evil nature is sex and drinking, cussing, doing all the other stuff that we like to name in Galatians. But the greatest evil against God is not believing in him. It is the greatest evil, yet it's the evil that we often don't talk about. It's like that big elephant in the room that we just like, oh no, we believe. No, really. That's not the problem. No, the problem is you can't stop sexing. No, the problem is you're a gambler. No, the problem is you, you got this, 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 and that going on. No, the problem is you don't believe. Because the moment you believe, all that other stuff starts getting taken care of. So why don't we put the focus on belief instead of all the other stuff that are just symptoms? 
How about we get to the root of it? Well, God forbid we ever go to the root of anything. We love the branches. We love to tinkle around and prune a couple of, you know, flowers off and say, well, I did this and that. But we never kill it. We would do ourselves good to fully examine our levels of belief in God because we have levels. Some things we believe wholeheartedly. We're like, oh, yeah, 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 this is this is good. I got this. I believe that there's other things we simply don't believe. So when do you admit I don't believe it? Help my unbelief. We may find that the evil nature is ruling more than we believe, even though we're not doing some of the sins. Because it's much easier to stop doing stuff than to really trust and believe. So what if that evil nature that he's talking about is really about the fact that you just don't believe him, then you doing all the stuff you're doing. Now, foot. Now we got a whole nother conjuring we got to deal with. Romans 3 and 21. It says, but now God has shown us a different way to heaven, not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way, though not really new because the scriptures talked about it long ago. Now, God says he will accept and acquit us. And declare us not guilty. You're accepted. You're already acquitted. And you're not guilty. Why do we carry so much guilt? Why? Why do we want to live like that? Hmm. If. Because there's a lot of ifs in here. If we trust Jesus Christ. To take away our sins. So you're only accepted. And not guilty. If. You trust him to take away your sins. If you don't trust that he's done that, then you're not accepted and you have not been acquitted and you are guilty. And maybe that's why we walk around guilty is because <laughs> we don't trust Jesus to take away the sins. And we all can be saved in this way by coming to Christ, no matter who we are or what we have been like. So who in present, in what past, we've been like? Yes, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious idea. Because remember, sin is simply missing the mark of God. So we are constantly in sin. So it has to be bigger than just us not sinning. I'm going to get to that. Yet now God declares us not guilty of offending him if we trust in Jesus Christ, who his, his kindness freely takes away our sins. Now, I want to know why this concept is so difficult for us. It seems like a breath of fresh air. Well, Lord, because I know I'm sinful. And I know I'm going to act up on time, even though my heart is trying to change and get myself together. But I'm a mess up. And you're telling me that all I must do is trust that you're going to take it away. And I'm no longer guilty. And you're not even offended. 
Why isn't this a breath of fresh air? 25. For God sent Jesus Christ to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger against us. Because remember, he's up there chit-chatting with God. Tell him, don't be mad at these people no more. Right? I'm going to take it all. Just throw everything, all the anger, all the vengeance, all the offenses on me. I'm going to absorb all of it so that they stand before you not guilty. And we like, I don't like that, Jesus. I think I need to play a part and help you. Is that too much for you to carry? Well, let me carry my part. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. The blood and our faith. So if you don't have faith in the blood, you're not saved from the wrath. In this way, he was being entirely fair, even though he did not punish those who sinned in former times. For he was looking forward to the time when Christ would come and take away those sins. And now in these days also, he can receive sinners in the same way because Jesus took away their sins. Now, you would think that this would be good news. And then when he was talking about this, we'd be blown away. We'd be like, dang, that's the business. We need to get on that. No. But let's keep reading because this is us. And this is the people's reply. But is this unfair for God to let criminals go free and say that they are innocent? <laughs> really? And that's what we think. Well, that seems not right. That I can just trust and believe and you take it all the way? Shouldn't there be something we have to do to make us right before you? <sighs> no. For he does it on the basis of their trust in Jesus who took away their sins. So your sins are already taken away. All you got to do is trust that they're taken away. This is not rocket science. Then what can we boast about? See how we think? Then what can we boast about doing to earn our salvation? I just told you all you got to do is trust in the blood. And you're talking about, you need a boast. You need something on the back of your skirt that says I'm saved. Because our acquittal is not based on our good deeds. It is based on what Christ has done and our faith in him. So it is that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things we do. And does God save only the Jews in this way? No, the Gentiles too may come to him in the same manner. God treats us all the same, whether Jews or Gentiles are acquitted if they have faith. Will then, if we are saved by faith, does this mean that we no longer need obey God's laws? Just the opposite. In fact, only 
when we trust Jesus, can we obey him? And we wonder why we're not obeying him because we don't trust him. So let us not forget the two greatest commands that clear everything up. Love your Lord and love the folks. He said, if you do those things, you have already covered every other command there is out there. But no, we want to create a whole nother list. Stuff that Jesus never talked about. Because you don't want to love him and you don't want to love everybody else. So you're trying to work yourself out of what he said so that you can get into heaven on your terms. Lord help us on that day. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, because remember, righteousness is always in the context of relationship with God and with others. Now, Romans 4 and 3. Just figure I should keep driving the point home since we have real troubles with this. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God. And that is why God canceled his sins and declared him not guilty because he believed God. But didn't he earn his right to heaven by all the good things he did? No, for being saved is a gift. If a person could earn it by being good, then it wouldn't be free. But it is. It is given to those who do not work for it. For God declares sinners to be good in his sight if they have faith in Christ to save them from God's wrath. Romans 4, scoot down to 23. Now this wonderful statement that he was accepted and approved through his faith wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was for us too. Assuring us that God will accept us in the same way he accepted Abraham. When we believe the promises of God who brought back Jesus our Lord from the dead. He died for our sins and rose again to make us right with God. Filling us with God's goodness. So he didn't just make us right. He then filled us with the goodness of God. That's pretty big. Why don't we feel like we could? Romans 5 and 1. Told you I had a lot of reading to do. So now since we have been made right in God's sight by faith in his promises, we can have real peace with him because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. For because of our faith, he has brought us into this place of the highest privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to actually becoming all that God has had in mind for us to be. So you got to start with the faith and all accepting the promises. Then we get to confident, confidently, excuse me, look forward to all that God has for us. We can't jump into, I'm going to become this great, magnificent saint 
when I have not started with faith. So we're looking for some accomplishment. We're looking for some work to be, you know, revealed through us. But you don't have faith, so you can't become who God sent you out to be. That makes really good, easy sense. So now let's look at our sin nature. Just in a little different vein. So I want us to decide to fully embrace these scriptures I'm about to read. Because we have a whole different view of sin than what the scriptures actually say. So let's see what they say. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Took all our sins, poured it into Christ, and then poured the goodness into us. Can you fully embrace that? Do you really believe that you are full of God's goodness? Knowing who you are, knowing the thoughts that run through your mind, knowing the actions that you have partaken in, can you say, I am full of God's goodness? Who teaches us that we are full of God's goodness? Are we always sitting on the bus stop waiting for the goodness to come? As soon as I let go of my sins, I'm going to get God's goodness. As soon as I can release myself from this nature, that's when I'm going to know God for real. That is not what the scripture says. It at the cross, when he poured the sin into Christ, he then poured the goodness into us. I think sometimes we think the Bible's lying. Romans 5 and 21. And the amazing thing is how many times have we read some of these scriptures? We've read them. We've heard them. We have not taken them in with faith. So 5 and 21. Before sin ruled over all men and brought them to death. But now God's kindness rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, then shall we keep on sinning so that God can keep on showing us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Of course not. Should we keep on sinning when we don't have to? For sin's power over us was broken. When we became Christians and were baptized to become part of Jesus Christ, through his death, the power of your sinful nature has been shattered. It does not have power over you. It is shattered. No pieces to glue together and put back together. Sin has no power over you. Well, then what are we wrestling with? If it's dead and defeated, who are we fighting? 
your old sin loving nature was buried with him by baptism when he died. And when God, the father with glorious power brought him back to life again, you were given his wonderful new life to enjoy. Do you believe that Jesus got up or is he still in the grave waiting for us to get our sinful self together so that he can raise up and then we can say, okay, now we can live the good life. For you have become a part of him. And so you died with him, so to speak. And when he died and now you share in his new life and shall rise as he did. So we kind of believe we like we know we getting up. But you already up. You're already risen. There's no sin power over you. It's over. Your old evil desires were nailed to the cross with him. So every desire you feel you have, it's already nailed. That part of you that loves to sin was crushed and fatally wounded. So that your sin-loving body is no longer under sin's control. No longer needs to be a slave to sin. For when you are dead to sin, you are freed from all its allure and its power over you. And since your old sin-loving nature died with Christ, we know that you will share his new life. Christ rose from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. He died once for all to end sin's power. He died to end the power of sin. But now he lives forever in unbroken fellowship with God. So look upon your old sin nature as dead and unresponsive to sin. And instead be alive to God, alert to him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's all where you're putting your focus. We have been putting all our focus on something that's dead. We actually saying a prayer for it to rise again. We trying to raise the sin when it's dead. Instead of moving over here to the life. That has been raised up. That is so backwards. Twelve. Do not let sin control your puny body any longer. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Do not let any part of your bodies become tools of wickedness to be used for sinning. But give yourself completely to God. Every part of you. For you are back from the dead. And you want to be chosen the hands of God to be used for his good purposes. Sin never again needs to be your master. For now you are no longer tied to the law where sin enslaves you. But you are free under God's favor and mercy. We do not believe we're free. We still feel like sin is the chain around our ankle that we have to constantly drag around. Does this mean that now we can go ahead and sin and not worry about it? For our salvation does not depend on keeping the law, 
but are receiving God's grace? Of course not. Don't you realize, I think this is where we miss it, that you can choose your own master. See, before we didn't have the power to choose. Now we live in choice. So you get to choose your master. You can choose sin with death or else obedience with acquittal. The one to whom you offer yourself, he will take you and be your master and you will be his slave. We don't really want to be a slave to Jesus. Because we're a little more fearful of Jesus than we are to sin. Thank God that though you once chose to be slaves of sin, now you have obeyed with all your heart the teaching to which God has committed to you. And now you are free from your old master sin and you have become slaves to your new master righteousness. Now, how many of us feel like we the slave to righteousness? So the scripture admonishes us to become a slave to righteousness. A slave is under all control of the thing or the one it is enslaved to. The thing or person determines everything they do. Scripture says we once were slaves to sin. Therefore, sin had us under its complete control. It dictated our actions. A newly released slave has to learn how to live the free life. It has to discover that they are capable of making their own decisions and forming their own thoughts and behaviors. When you once had a hard taskmaster that didn't want you to think, move, or breathe without his permission, it's a leap to go to a master that wants your best and wants you to prosper and grow. And this is the dilemma we're in. We're used to being ruled very harshly. We're used to being driven. And we have become so accustomed to that way of living that looking over here at Christ and he's saying, freedom's yours. Trust me to do this. I'm not going to be looking over your shoulder every two seconds. I'm not going to be the one telling you got to do this, this and that. I'm saying, listen. I got the best for you. I want you to have the most prosperous life that you can have here on earth. And then I'm going to give you heaven at the end and we can just chill out together forever. Right? But we're like, that's too easy. You know, it's just like the old slaves. They got free and they was like, well, master, can we stay? Because this living on by myself is too much. You sure you don't want to tell me what to do? I'm willing to stay here with you. And that's what we've kind of done with sin. I'm willing to stay because I know you. I'm used to you driving me. You know, we pray, Lord, take it away. But not really. We don't want it to go. And it's not what I want us to understand that it is not about the actual behaviors of sin. It is about us being afraid to be free. It is about us being afraid to see a free, living, full, abundant life. Because we don't believe that we're full of God's goodness. So we still believe we deserve to be punished. 
So I live in the state of mind that there's no way I can just be fancy free because I know who I am. I've been struggling with this thing. I know I'm full of sin. I know I keep missing the mark of God. And you're telling me that every time I just come to you and say, I give it to you, forgive me, you're just going to cleanse it? That's it? That's all I got to do is trust that you will take it and you're gladly taking it? It just doesn't make sense to us. So I'd rather be controlled by this sin thing and not have faith and feel like I'm full of fear and all of this so that I can feel like I have something that is controlling me because I need to be controlled because I don't trust myself. But he's not asking you to trust yourself. He's asking you to trust him. Don't trust yourself because our righteousness is filthy rags. So please don't trust you. No matter how much you clean up and look right and get it together, still don't trust you. Trust me. I'm the one who's done it. I got this. And all you have to do is have faith. What? All I have to do is keep believing that you're going to do it for me. That if I fall in love with you completely, that you're going to take care of everything. Oh, the devil's so tricky. Oh, he's so tricky. He's far more tricky than what we've given him credit for. We've labeled things Satan. See, he's not even fooling with that's the little stuff. I got a bigger plan. I'm going to get y'all that think you know what you're doing, that think you trust and believe in God. I'm about to snatch it all from you. Because he knows that without faith, we have no cleansing. So anything that makes me not fully grasp and live by the completion of the cross is a ploy of Satan. He keeps us afraid of sin because he knows what you are afraid of controls you. So if I'm scared that I'm a slip and I'm scared that I'm going to do something wrong, I'm scared that I'm going to not live up to what God wants me to live up to. That's what controls me. So I'm never free. I'm never living just comfortably knowing that God got me. I'm always in this box. Sin's coming after me. It's running after me. And I never can run fast enough because it always catches me. <sighs> like Paul said, the law was created and then it seduced us to follow it. And see, this is what we've done. This is what the church world has done. We've created just a new group of, of laws and it seduces us because it gives us control. Okay, this is all I have to do. I can look this way. I can speak with this vernacular. I can make sure I don't do this. I can make sure I don't go here. I'm good. And then everyone sees me looking like I'm good. And Jesus must be pleased. But you fooled yourself because you don't trust in his work. So you're not acquitted and you're still guilty. So we are so afraid of sin, but that's because we do not believe that the blood continually covers all of my sins. We do not believe that we are dead to it, meaning that it does not have the power to enslave you 
anymore. It doesn't, this is not saying that you won't commit a sin. It is saying that it will never, ever enslave you again. It can never drive you the way it drove you before. It can't. No matter how much we want to act like we can be overtaken by it, he said it's over. He said it's nailed to the cross. So either you're going to believe him, the one that was on that cross and got up, or you're going to believe all the other mess everybody's been telling you. It cannot enslave you. Why don't we want people to know that? Goodness. So it's not about committing a sin. It is more about is sin driving and leading you. And when you sin, are you returning back to the one who died to free you from the effects of sin? Are you being convicted? Are you learning from your mistakes? Are you going back to Jesus and saying, God, please forgive me? Sin would never lead you back to Christ. So his plan is working. We are so busy trying to convince people that we aren't of the spirit, that you can't do X, X, Z, Z, and we got the list going, right? Because we know all those. This means you're out of the spirit. So if you don't do these things, it means you're in the spirit. That's not Bible. This way we stay in a, a state of being enslaved again by the sin because the mindset is saying Jesus didn't really snatch the keys from Satan. And that at any moment, Satan has the ability to go up to Jesus and say, give me that key. I want Andre's key. Give me, give me Peanut's key. She don't seem to get it right. Come on, let's play a little game. Sometimes you get the key, Jesus. Sometimes I get the key. Do y'all really think Jesus is that fickle? Do you think he's exchanging keys with Satan? Did he snatch it or did he not snatch it? Did he count it over or, or is he playing with us? And this is all a game. And if it's a game, then why are we doing this? If it's not a sealed deal and it's over, why are we doing this? We're wasting our time. This is stupid. Goodness. We do not believe that we are dead to it. Do you really believe that at any moment Jesus is about to walk back over to Satan and say, here's your keys back? So think of Jesus snatching the keys as him taking a huge key ring. Each key represents who he called, who he chose, who he justified, and who he glorified. Because remember, in God's eyes, it's over. He said that all in one swoop. But we don't believe that either. Because we keep thinking we're going to get kicked out the kingdom. When we act as if Satan can have some hold over me, I'm really saying that when Jesus snatched the keys, it was on a contingency plan. So the cross worked for some people, didn't work for others. Goodness, I didn't get enough blood dropped on me. I'm glad you got enough because you get to stay. But somehow I just got a sprinkle and I needed a whole bucket load. And this is how we're looking at our salvation. I mean, really? Jesus? God? He don't know what he's doing? He's unsure if he really saved you? The problem is you're unsure. The problem is you don't trust in what the scripture says about salvation. So why don't you just own it by yourself 
and stop throwing stuff off on Jesus and getting up saying stuff about God and about sin and about the devil, you carry that mess by yourself. I'm not carrying your mess no more. Jesus died for me. He got up for me. He cleansed me. I have faith and trust in what he did. I'm good. Y'all live not good, but I'm going to walk in this free life good. See, that's the choice. Because you're either enslaved to sin. Because remember, unbelief, that kind of thing can take you to hell. We forgot about that. But that's sin. So you can live in your unbelief and go on to hell. What you're afraid of is what you're going to get. Because you choose not to believe him. I'm going to walk on the belief side and get to heaven. So talking about devil, the devil has us talking more about sin than Christ. We're more fascinated with sin can do and how it can get you and how it can send you to hell. But what about what Christ did? Is it not greater? So why are we talking about the lowest factor instead of the highest factor? He got us talking about losing the gift more than the, the permanency of the gift. We're talking about being afraid of Satan because I guess ultimately he has a way of overpowering the spirit and snatching you back to his camp. I guess the devil knows how to just get into you, pull that spirit up out of you and bring you back to his side. Y'all think the devil's a little more powerful than what he is. Jesus is greater. He did take him down. He did defeat him completely. He is sending him to the lake of fire forever. Why do you do you think if the devil could fight with Jesus that he would be going to hell? Do you think he would be worrying about you going clubbing versus him going to hell? I think he would be fighting Jesus over me trying to get to heaven. Then you going to the club and I ain't telling nobody to go to the club. I'm just saying. You know, how people like to miss the point you're making. She said, you get to go to the club. Now, see, that's not what I was saying. Anyway, I ain't got time for that. Okay, so this is why he says, come and learn of me. Seek me. If we filled our services with the amazing knowledge of God, our lives would be transformed. If we talked about the power of God and the power of the cross, what that really accomplished, we would not be afraid. We are not supposed to be scared of the devil and of sin and of tripping and falling. He put a plan together so that when we trip and fall, he already got it covered. He knew we would trip and fall. So it's covered. Why is that so difficult to accept? Now let's move on to the better things. If we quoted the scriptures that the evil one touches you not, or you will not falter or slip if you stay in the spirit. Why aren't we pumping the goodness of the message? Why are we talking about the opposite side of the message? The part that's already defeated and dead. And we get so excited about it. Such were some of you. You want to list everything you were, but who are you now? Shouldn't you be more excited about who you are now? I can't get a leap or a jump over who you are now, but you talk about everything you did and you're skipping and running and bucking. That's a problem. 
you're glorifying more of the mess than the gift of God. Help us, Jesus. If we concentrated on the good news of grace and mercy, that's a big thing. See, we don't talk about it enough. That's why we don't have enough faith in it. We don't have enough trust in what grace and mercy is. It's an effort ending. It's renewed fresh every morning. It's covering you daily. It's got you no matter what. But I'm scared. Because see, if we believed in the grace and the mercy fully, Repentance would be such a gift we would honor. We would be so grateful every time God just tapped us and said, don't do that one. We wouldn't be like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Oh, God, and I had to fast for six days. and I got No, you would just boldly go to the throne and say, I know I, I messed up. I offended you. But I trust in your grace, in your blood, that I'm back good again. That's the plan. And we're so scared of people or us misusing the plan. Oh, I'm just going to go out and just act a fool. No, you won't because the spirit's in you. It's not going to allow you to do that. You're going to feel like crap. He's going to convict you. Go ahead. Try it. Watch him bring you back. You're his. If we taught how to look for your triggers, it would lead you back to the easy path. We could help strengthen those who get weak in the faith instead of bashing them. Because again, remember what used to enslave us. So we were used to that taskmaster. We're used to him telling us what to do, how to do it. He knows how to push our triggers. You need to be aware of what your triggers are. What made you go and do that? What was going on in your life at that time? What made you slip from faith? Figure that out instead of concentrating so much on what you did. Figure out why you did it, what you thought it was going to give you, and then recognize that he gave you repentance. You're back there in his graces and everything's good. Next time, we're going to learn again. He took the sin and the shame. Didn't he say that? Right? Got up there. Sin and shame is his. It's not yours. Why are you walking around full of shame because you sinned? He took it from you so that you don't have to feel that ever again. But we like to feel all heavy because that's our way of acting like we're so sorry. So we like to grovel. Oh, I don't know why he loves me. I don't know why he cares. I just can't seem to get right. I know I'm not going to make it to heaven if I stay this way. You sure not because you don't trust. But we think that that's appealing to God. It's disgusting. Because when you do that, you're saying, I don't believe what you did for me. I don't trust in the fight that you went through. On that cross. Before the cross. In the grave. Fighting with the devil, getting back up, sending his spirit, choosing you. He chose you, called you, allowed you to accept him, allowed you to have a changed heart 
and then let you go to baptism because you said you believed on what that meant. And then he was kind enough to give you his spirit and not just give it to you, you know, where you can't feel it and touch it, but gave it to you because he knows we need stuff. Gave you a tongue so that you can always reaffirm because we got problems with just trusting. So you get to reaffirm that he's there via the tongue. What you tripping off of? But he did all that and is so eager to send you to hell with his the man he hates the most. Who destroyed the thing he loved the most. He looked at us and said it was very, very good. And he came in and destroyed us, messed up the whole thing. You think that he just is going to just gladly hand you over to Satan? Because you keep tipping the bottle? Because you got issues with intimacy so that you sexing everybody? He going to work that stuff out in you. But you got to first trust that he can do it. Instead of you trying to do it. Because you can't do it because you can't change your heart. The problem is, is that we have a fear that the cross was not complete. And we love to talk about the cross. And we love to sing about the cross. And we love to shed a couple of tears about the cross. But we do not believe it was complete. Because if we believed it was complete, all the rest of this stuff would be over with. We would not be having all of these conversations and all these sermons and all this bashing if we believe the cross was effective. But the moment we begin to believe that the law saves us, we step out of grace and we lose faith. Now, we know we can't make it to heaven without grace. So hold on to your laws if you want and pray that them laws are going to get you to heaven. Because the moment you adhere to them and say, this is how I'm going to get there. And this means I'm righteous. And this means I'm a child of God. By these acts, you step out of grace. He said immediately. Because it's all about your heart. Where's your heart? Do you really believe those things are the things that are going to take you to heaven? And too many people believe that those things is carrying them to heaven. Ah, there's no grace for you. Good luck. And he said, it is impossible to please me without faith. So now you ain't pleasing them either. Your life is looking real good right now, isn't it? So we use the scriptures that state that those who are not in the spirit act like this. However, we are in the spirit. So though we may act on occasion, we are not a slave to it anymore. And we are covered by God in the work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stand on that from now on. I got no choice. I would be a complete idiot to go back to the other way after knowing this. So righteousness does not equal without sin. We list a list of sins that we don't do and say this means I'm righteous. But biblically, that is not the truth. We will always be with sin. Yet God sees us as righteous because of the imputed righteousness from his son Jesus. That is the only reason why you are righteous. Because you have faith in the fact that Jesus gave you his righteousness. So when we're trying to prove our righteousness to man by abstaining from sins, Jesus gives us the parable of the tax collector. Luke 18 and 9. 
Then he told this story to some who boasted of their virtue and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a proud, self-righteous Pharisee and the other a cheating tax collector. The proud Pharisee prayed this prayer. Thank God I'm not a sinner like everyone else. Who's got the victory this week? Especially like that tax collector over there. Look at all them sinful folks. For I never cheat. Ooh, I've been saved and sanctified for 20 years. I don't commit adultery. I would be disgusted by that. I go without food twice a week. And I go to prayer every Monday night. And I'm at every service. And I give a tip to everything I can. But the corrupt tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, but beat upon his chest in sorrow, exclaiming, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home forgiven, for the proud shall be humbled, but the humble shall be honored. I would prefer God to honor me than for you to think that I got it all together. So before I leave these last two scriptures, I'm going to say, I find this really interesting when you look at the context of this lesson. God prayed for us that our faith fell us not. If his greatest concern was sin, why didn't he pray that they sin no more? He knew that the key was faith. He knew that sin was buried with his son. He knew that he had the power to reserve the curse of sin, but he knew that the only way it would be done was through faith. Let God do the work which you only, only, excuse me, he can do. He doesn't need our help. He only needs our faith. Hmm. Have faith in the work that God is doing. If you could do it alone, you wouldn't need God. Your faith felt you not. He needs our faith to do his work. So instead of praying, God, take this from me. I don't want to do this anymore. Start praying for faith. Give me faith to believe in the work you've already done. And let me see it the way you see it. Let me see me the way you see me, and where you see me. Hmm. So I'm going to end with this. And this should be all of our testimonies. We should be able to say this boldly, without a but or a hesitation. Galatians 2 and 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the real life I now have within this body is a result of my trusting in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not one of those who treats Christ's death as meaningless for it could be saved. I'm sorry. If we could be saved by keeping Jewish laws, then there was no need for Christ to die. Philippians three and seven. He says, but all these things that I once thought very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all the way so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain 
of knowing Christ, my Lord. I have put aside all else, counting it worthless than nothing, in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. Now I have given up everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. And I don't mean to say I'm perfect. I haven't learned all I should even yet, but I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ saved me for and wants me to be. This is where we got to be. And this is where our prayer life has to stay. God, you got to get me here. And I'm giving you complete control to get me there. But I got to get there. Because everything else, I'm wasting my time. I done wasted all these years trying to get it right for you. And you're not even excited. So Lord, help us get in our spirit so deeply that we never lose faith in your work. And we live with all confidence that I will see you in peace on the other side. Thank you for your work and for giving me your spirit. Help me to let it and it alone lead and guide me into all truth and righteousness. We owe that to God. I'm finished. Thank you.